five, six, seven, eight. Hello, my name is Holly Lewis. I'm Lawson Keeney. And I am Jean Lewis. And welcome to The Long Watch, the internet's premier pro John Lithgow podcast, where we stick to the list for better or worse. This week, we have watched a very tonally opposite film here. Again, with a tonally opposite John C. Riley performance. We have watched the movie musical Chicago. But before we get into that, we'll talk about what we've seen within the week. Lawson, why don't you start us off? Sure. I assume you guys haven't seen Black Widow yet? Haven't gone around to it. Well, I've been holding this off for a few weeks now to see whether you guys could see it. I know things have been a little weird where we are at the moment, but I'll just go through it now. And I categorically will not pay extra money to Disney Plus to just watch the movie that way. Mm. I'm already paying the subscription. I don't... Uh, it just doesn't gel for me. Well, it's a superhero movie, obviously, directed by Kate Shortland. It's based on the character created by Stan Lee, Don Rico, and Don Heck. It's set just after Captain America Civil War. And we follow Natasha Romanov, obviously, Black Widow. We all know this. She's played by Scarlett Johansson. While she is forced to confront her past and has to go and find the cover family that she lived with as a child to investigate a sleeper agent mind control program from the Russian spy master that she used to work for as a kid. It's a whole thing. This is good, but they really should have put it out before the Infinity Endgame two-parter. It is really a side story, and it feels like it, considering the grand arc of Black Widow's character. By slotting it in, it can't have the impact that it should. I mean, we find out some stuff here about Black Widow. It humanizes her. It gives her, you know, history and some pathos. And, you know, we find out about the Widow program and all of the psychological conditioning that she was under. This, like, twisted fake family that she was placed with. They were all spies trained by, you know, she was basically the child of the Russian government and or the Russian spy agencies and She's living with David Harbour and Rachel Weiss, who are pretending to be her parents, but they aren't actually. She's got a pretend sister who will grow up to be played by Florence Pugh. And that stuff's really interesting, and the emotional aspect of that and the psychological aspect of that. And one suspects that it could have had a real impact and power on some of the stuff in Endgame, especially, that happens with that character. If we had known some of that stuff, then some of her behaviour in that film would have gained extra meaning but as it is it, it now stands as this weird little postscript and the actual plot of the film the actiony part of it is disposable at best i mean the family stuff the fake family stuff her reuniting all of these people she hasn't seen in years and kind of resents because of what they represent her sort of appropriation by the russians as this child soldier, basically. That stuff's all the best stuff in the movie, but it, it doesn't capitalise on the alleged darkness of Natasha. I think that that's been one of the the failings of the MCU's treatment of Black Widow, is they've hinted at her being this really dark character who's done terrible things, but they have always, always shied away from actually presenting that, and they do so here in a way that 
again, makes all of those elements just feel like lip service. We never get the impression that she is anything really but noble. Mm. Yeah, because in the comics, she is a deeply conflicted, complicated character. Mm. She initially appeared as a villain for Daredevil, Mm. and her character has grown from there because she exists in this interesting grey area. She's this character who will do the hard shit that the other heroes won't do. Mm. The new characters here are really great, though. You get her sister, Yelena, played by Florence Pugh, her father, Alexi, played by David Harbour, and her mother, Melina, played by Rachel Weiss. It's a really good little collection of of supporting performances. They all have great chemistry with each, with each other. They're really fun. I'm looking forward to seeing more of them, especially more of Yelena, played by Florence Pugh, who they certainly seem to be setting up as as entering the Avengers sphere of the MCU proper yeah. going forward. She is really good, funny, has a lot of the, you know, Black Widow attributes and skills and action stuff, but with a different personality that makes it not just a repeat, and it's a very good charismatic performance. Alexi is basically Rush's Captain America. Yeah, but kind of an idiot. Yeah. Like a real fool. And he's really funny. I want to see more of him as well. I mean, Rachel Weisz is good as Melina, but she doesn't have... I mean, she's the straight woman to the other characters. So she she does get less of a chance to show off. If anything, actually, Natasha is sidelined in her own movie. She's often the least interesting character on screen. Again, because of the reluctance of the MCU to actually give her anything with a with a sharper edge. She certainly is not the, the least interesting character on screen when she's on screen with the villain because, whoa, this is an incredibly, incredibly weak bad guy. It's this Drakov, played by Ray Winstone, he's this generic Russian baddie. He is for sure going to go down alongside that elf guy and Thor 2 as the MCU's <laughs> weakest villains. Yeah, <laughs> like what a nothing of a... Of a, of a antagonist. But you do get this, like, outstanding, moody opening credits sequence, which is, I think, the first time that an MCU movie's actually had an opening credits. But it's, it's sort of to bridge the opening prologue in the 80s with the present day, and you see, like, spy photographs of Natasha's life growing up and things, and it's set to this really moody cover of Smells Like Teen Spirit by Malia J. I mean, the action is fine, but, like, the finale part of it is the best bit of the action it's it's big it's bold it's loud kind of like me sitting in the theater going wow you know it feels good to see one of these things again after two years i mean it has been two years pretty much since the last mcu movie in theaters so yeah i've heard taskmaster looks cool but is kind of weak in other regards oh i've no familiarity with taskmaster as a comic character i know that they've apparently made a change to some of what the character's story and background is that has caused some controversy, I don't know. Taskmaster actually didn't really make much of an impact at all. It felt mm. that that character felt pretty, I don't know. Like, they had the idea to do the Nemesis thing or the Terminator thing. Nameless, faceless, unstoppable force that tracks them and knows all their moves. But, I mean, it's pretty shallow. That mm. there's a good Lorne Balfe score. It, again, it was it was just a disservice to wait so long. Yeah. For all of the problems that the DCEU has had since its inception, I mean, they ate Marvel's lunch in terms of giving us a proper female superhero movie. I mean, that was, what, their fourth? 
After Man of Steel, yeah. Batman v Superman and Suicide Squad. And even Suicide Squad was kind of like a two-hander between Quinn and Deadshot. Well, it was this huge ensemble movie, yeah, but mm. Black Widow is what, the 20 24th mm. Marvel mm. Cinematic Universe movie, and they finally got around to it 13 years after the first one. Yeah. But, I mean, admittedly, Marvel does not have as big a female superhero as Wonder Woman. But mm. still, it's not great. Anyways, I also saw Snake Eyes, G.I. Joe Origins. Okay. An action movie directed by Robert Schwentke follows Snake Eyes, played by Henry Golding. He's this skilled fighter. He has this tragic past where his family is... where his, He's called it Snake Eyes because his father was killed by a mercenary who made him roll dice, loaded dice, with that came up Snake Eyes and that sealed his death. It was like, roll it if you win, you live, and if you lose, you die kind of thing. It's like Anton Chigurh. Yeah. And he's he's after this guy, basically. He's Mm. spent his whole life looking for him, and he's recruited by the mysterious Kenta, played by Takihiro Hira, to infiltrate a secret clan and steal the powerful weapon that they're guarding. And in exchange for that, Kenta is going to give him info on the guy who killed his father. But once he actually gets into the clan, he actually starts to like them all. They seem pretty noble in what they're doing, and his loyalties start to conflict. Who asked for this movie? Like, who wanted it? Look, man, I don't know. How popular were the G.I. Joe live-action movies recently? Not very. Not, not very. I've seen both of them. The first one is appallingly bad. The second one's actually kind of decent. But those, admittedly, are my only exposure to the franchise so you know don't necessarily interpret it as as a shot at gi joe i mean there are plenty of decent franchises out there who have not fared well in the adaptation of the big screen but like taking a supporting character from a not very successful film franchise and spinning it out to this origin movie it's like in the film franchise he never even takes off his helmet and he doesn't speak in the first two, it's... I just don't know who this is for. It's incredibly generic. There's virtually no personality that it possesses to call its own. Snake Eyes is really hard to root for. He he knows what could happen if he gives the powerful weapon that he's guarding to the bad guy he's working for, but he's just so narrow-minded in pursuit of the guy that killed his father that he just does it anyway. I mean... It's really shallow character development. Henry Golding, who is an actor that I generally like, has no room for his usual charm here. He's All he's left to do is to struggle to hide his British accent, and not well. The intrusion of the campier G.I. Joe elements starts to come in as well in the second half, and by that point, it just feels bizarre. It's like a different movie from the one that we've been watching, and all of a sudden there are giant anacondas and... These supervillains and secret organizations bent on world domination and stuff like that. And it's a really big shift from what we've been seeing up till then, all the way to, to the finale, which is incredibly cheesy and not in a good way. It's like a live action Saturday morning cartoon in some senses. And the action is pretty bland too. It's save for, I mean, there's a few okay sword fights here. I do like sword fights. They are my favorite type of action sequence, probably. Mm. But I will say, you know, there's an, there's excellent Asian representation here. I think there are three non-Asian characters in the movie, which, considering the pretty poor representation that community gets in Western films, you know, that's not a bad thing at all. Uh, but they do waste Samara weaving 
totally and completely in a supporting role, and you get a really bad vampy performance by Ursula Corbero. It's it just just kind of a bizarre investment. Like they spent hundred and ten million dollars on this thing, and even if we weren't in the middle of a global pandemic, was anyone really expecting this to do the kind of money that it needed to do to make a profit? I'm still baffled that they made it, honestly. Well, Paramount is... I think it's Paramount. Yeah, Paramount. They're, they've been in constant search of movie franchises for quite a while now. Really, not that successfully. All they've really got is... I think Mission Impossible is them. Mm. But other than that, they've not had much success in the blockbuster space. But still, not Transformers, I suppose. I can kind of see the connection. I mean, the Hasbro property translated on the screen. They're trying to do it again. But I mean, like, we've had two failed attempts already. I also at the cinemas saw Spirited Away. It came back to cinemas for a 20th anniversary release. I got a free pin of No Face at the box office. But anyways, it's a fantasy anime movie directed by Hayao Miyazaki. Uh, and it follows this little girl named Chihiro, voiced by David Chase. She's moving with her parents to a new town and a new school, and she's pretty nervous about it. And on the way, they stop at an abandoned amusement park that I can only describe as extremely fucked up. Yeah. And she gets lost in the spirit world and has got to figure out a way home while working as a servant in the local spirit bathhouse. I really dug, like, the sheer creativity of this. Yeah. It's amazing. It's fantastical and colourful and surprising. Really weird, really unique. I like the cool duck guys. Yeah. I love the duck guys. They're awesome. I mean, it's like no other children's animated movie that I've seen. Miyazaki and his team are able to craft these amazing worlds and character designs. Mm. It is some of the best stuff I've seen. It's so charming. And this is my first Studio Ghibli movie I or Ghibli movie I haven't seen them before. Any of them. Wow. Howl's Moving Castle is on the list, but that's the only one. It's super intense as well. I mean, there's stuff oh, yeah. in here that they just never get away with if they tried to make it in Hollywood. Uh, there's some really creepy visuals, characters dripping with blood in some scenes. Yeah. Threats of, like... You know, if you tell anyone about this, I will rip your mouth off, like, stuff like that. Yeah. People get turned into pigs and threatened to be carved up. Hmm. The giant baby. Oh, yeah, the giant baby who's, like, threatening to break her arm if, he do- yeah. if she doesn't play with him. Jesus. It does take a little too long to pick up. I think it. I think they should have sure. gotten her to the spirit world a little more quickly than they did. But it kind of reminds me of... Those sort of classic children's stories like Alice in Wonderland or Peter Pan or the Chronicles of Narnia, where a kid in our world falls into a world that's parallel to ours that we're unaware of, this fantastical place. And it it reminds me a lot of those, just a whole lot more deranged. It's really episodic. It's it's spent spending a lot of time exploring the spirit world, all of the strange new characters that she meets, who all have these incredible designs that, that look so fantastic i mean they're fun characters too and chihiro is a really likable protagonist but my favorite is no face i love no face i love him because he's just so creepy but like kind of adorable at the same time he's he's very childlike yeah like when he makes the gold in his hand he goes ah yeah ah just just offering it i will say that some of the character behavior can feel a little bit weird at times and they're 
pivots in allegiance and friendship with other characters can seem really quick on occasion. Mm. I will say that they were playing the dubbed version. I don't yeah. know whether that's a result of the translation or whether that's a little less jarring in the original. The story is a good bit darker in the original language because we watched it. I think we talked about Spirit Away before on the podcast. We watched the subtitled and that one is a bit darker. It It's not fundamentally different. There's no scenes missing no. or anything like that. It's just that like some of the language and context that way is taken a little more seriously. Yeah, because a lot of this stuff is based on actual folklore. The different mm. kinds of spirits you see. And there's folklore from around the world shoved in here. Like Yubaba, obviously, is based off of Baba Yaga. There's the river spirits. There's all of that stuff. And it's a little bit more serious and a little bit darker. But generally, the heart of it is the same. I mean, the the dub does have some really excellent voice acting. Oh, the dub is good. I know that the studio... Is it Ghibli or Ghibli? Ghibli, I believe. I know that the Studio Ghibli movies have a reputation for having really strong Western voice casts, and that's true here. But the animation is just gorgeous. The design of the world is gorgeous. You get a really nice score by Joe Hisashi. Oh, what about that, that intro piano bit? the piano stuff yeah it's available for streaming on netflix as well i think it's i think i caught it on the last day that it was in theaters the fire alarm went off in the middle and we had to go and stand on the side of the street for five <laughs> minutes while they yeah it's it's a childhood favorite of harley and mine i watched at home catch me if you can it is a biographical drama film directed by steven spielberg it's based on the non-fiction book of the same name by frank abagnale jr and stan redding it's set in the 1960s when the 16-year-old Frank Abagnale Jr., played by Leonardo DiCaprio, runs away from home and becomes a con man. And he pretends to be a whole bunch of different professions while he scams people out of over $4 million. He pretends to be an airline pilot, a doctor, a lawyer. And along the way, he is pursued by the FBI agent Carl Hanratty, played by Tom Hanks. So here's the thing. According to an investigation that was only done last year, most of this is apparently bullshit. Hmm. This book that he wrote about his own escapades or co-wrote about his own escapades, the stories that he's been telling for decades that they based this movie on as alleged memoir, it apparently is mostly not true. And it's hard to describe my feelings about that because I hate it, but I kind of love it at the same time. <laughs> like, mm. it almost feels like the ultimate con in some ways. Yeah. <laughs> but it, it does also, I think, bring up an interesting question of, does a movie like this turning out to be false decrease its value in any way? I Honestly, I don't think it should because it is about the con game. Yeah. Ultimately, we all watch a lot of movies based on fictional accounts of shit. 
why should this fictional story that this dude wrote be any different? Well, because it's presenting it as fact. Well, there's a lot of clearly fictional movies that do the whole based on a true story nonsense. Yeah. And you could just look at it like that. You're telling me that those Conjuring movies didn't happen in real life? I'm saying they didn't happen exactly that way that they <laughs> show. I'm saying that Mr. Warren is not as charming as he appears in those films. And and that the Warrens were frauds. This is sort of a resurgent DiCaprio here. I mean, we went into it last week with Gangs of New York that these movies came out five days apart from each other, but I think Catch Me If You Can was filmed afterwards because of the Gangs of New York delay. It's, it's him still trying to shed his Titanic. Yeah. thing and he's giving an excellent performance here i mean he's my age in this movie but he's playing a 16 year old and he sells it because of that you know boyish look that he had at the time he can sell that yeah i don't think you could sell pretending to be a 16 year old no he can sell that it's this weird thing where he has to sell that people believe that he's in his mid-20s when he's conning them, but he also can sell that he's actually 16, and he he can do that well. Tom Hanks is in this nice supporting role as well. It's a little different from Tom Hanks's usual stuff. I mean, he gets to play this sort of prickly guy, this this prickly FBI agent, and the story's a good one. There's lots of, of neat touches, like, you know, one of the first cons that he pulls is when he goes to a new school and, you know, a kid bullies him in the classroom that he's dressed like a substitute teacher. And so when he actually walks into the class, he pretends to be the substitute teacher and runs the class for a week before he's found out. It's fun stuff and it's outrageous. You you root for Frank, but then there are also moments where the movie jolts you out of it and reminds you that what he's doing is actually... Not only illegal, but in some cases also really unethical in some of the people that he's conning. Mm. For instance, the 20-something-year-old woman played by Amy Adams that he gets engaged to and sleeps with and she doesn't know that he's a 16-year-old. Stuff like that. I mean, he he starts to get more and more out of control. This rising mania catches him and things get more and more complicated and really the heart of the movie turns into this strange relationship between Frank and Carl that is pretty well observed. I mean, Spielberg draws these parallels between Frank and Carl and Frank and his own father, and but also his mother as well as the father, to this idea of parents who have abandoned their children and things like that. I mean, Steven Spielberg is obsessed with father parallels. I mean, yeah. he's obsessed with, with dads. And the movie does briefly rehabilitate Christopher Walken as... Leonardo DiCaprio's father. I mean, he got an Oscar nomination for this movie. I believe it was his last Oscar nomination. And there is a surprising amount of now very recognisable actresses in small roles. There's uh, Amy Adams, as previously mentioned, Elizabeth Banks, Jennifer Garner, Amy Acker, Ellen Pompeo, Meredith Grey from Grey's Anatomy. And there's some great cinematography too by Janusz Kaminski. I mean, we had a bit of a conversation about whether we should maybe do this as a episode instead of Gangs of New York. I actually think in retrospect maybe we should have, but it's it's a good movie. I enjoyed it. I next watched Confessions of a Dangerous Mind. It is a dark comedy directed by George Clooney. It's based on the memoir by Chuck Barris, the creator of game show hits The Dating Game, The Newlywed Game, and The Gong Show, who also claimed, and I stress that word, claimed to be an assassin for the Central Intelligence Agency. (laughs) Strange person. 
weird man. He's played here by Sam Rockwell, and the validity of that claim is incredibly unlikely. The CIA is basically like, no, that did not happen. Even he has hinted at it in the past as being this almost Warhol-like media joke that he's playing on people. But That's fun. This is, is a really strange film. It's written by Charlie Kaufman. Oh. And it's Clooney's directorial debut as well. And he is good. He has chops. I mean, I know that his career as a director is hit and miss, but in terms of his technical ability to film scenes, he is stylish and creative, and he shows that here. I do think he makes a mistake in pitching the first half of the movie, though. He kind of overcooks the creeping weirdness that Kaufman is bringing to the script, and he overdirects some of the supporting performances that make them too big and too manic, which, combined with a kind of slightly off directorial framing of the scenes in general can make for some weird deliveries it's it's just not on the same wavelength it's not all cohering as it should but it goes overtly Kaufman in the second half and it is better for it things spiral the movie itself is even constantly hinting at the idea that it's all just bullshit there are these odd little documentary interstitials that Clooney stitches in of his real life colleagues interviewed at the time that the movie was made like saying things about him like you know yes he would often travel overseas for the show and look I don't know if he was a hitman for the CIA he was really weird everyone found him to be a really odd guy and I mean, it just ranges from bewildered to kind of contemptuous. And the movie sort of pokes at Barris's role in the creation of modern reality TV and, and kind of takes him to task for it a little bit. I mean, the dating game, the newlywed game, it was these were things that sort of were risque for their time and sort of poked and prodded at the social mores of the time. The newlywed game was infamous for leading to several divorces and the Gong Show was like this this weird circus sideshow of a of a thing where it was basically just all of the bad auditions from you know America's Got Talent or Britain's Got Talent like that was the point to get these people who thought that they had talent to come out and humiliate themselves for their fifteen minutes of fame. So it interrogates that a little bit, and it, it ties into this theme of a midlife crisis that he's having. His spy hijinks present him as being this much more suave guy than the paranoid neurotic that he actually is. And it could all just be considered this self-indulgent daydreams of, of a fantasist. It's kind of meta in that respect. Within the movie world, it's presented as legit, as, as actually happening to the character. But it's always got this extra layer there to it, interrogating it from the point of view of real life. And that's added to with those documentary segments. I was initially not on board with what... Rockwell was doing it was off-putting and I I found it to be a little too much but then I watched the behind the scenes footage that showed the real guy and it was spot on that's just how the guy is (laughs) (laughs) and you get this appealing supporting performance from Drew Barrymore but she's given short shrift I mean it was the right call given the storyline is a lot less compelling than than the rest of it but it's a pity for her and, I mean, Clooney's called in all these favours. I mean, Julia Roberts is here in a little supporting character. It's nice to see her doing some weirder stuff. And you get very brief cameos from Brad Pitt and Matt Damon. I mean, the gag yeah. being that on the dating game... Because it's like the dating game was like there was a woman and then she was separated by a partition from three men. And she would ask different questions of them and they would answer. And at the end of it, she would choose one of them without having ever seen them. 
to go on a date with. And, and of course, the gag that Brad Pitt and Matt Damon are used for is that the woman doesn't choose them. She chooses this much more homely guy when she could have had Brad Pitt or, or Matt Damon. Side note, it's one of like the creepiest little details in game show history, but a serial killer went on the dating game once. Oh, yeah. After already having killed people, and even though he was picked by the woman in the game, once she actually got a good look at him, she was like, that guy is creepy as hell, I'm not going on a date with him, and she didn't. And later on, they found out that he had been killing women, so probably the right call. I mean, Clooney is in front of the camera as well as this supporting CIA handler character, and he is very good, flat and kind of threatening. It's just a really interesting and, and fairly assured debut, but the slow start does hurt it a bit. It's available for streaming on Stan if anyone's interested. I saw The Core, a disaster film directed by John Amiel. In it, the Earth's magma core has mysteriously stopped rotating. So the Earth's electromagnetic field starts to dissipate, causing all sorts of problems like sun hotspots that burn cities to cinders and earthquakes and all sorts of things. So a team of overqualified actors have to journey to the center of the Earth to detonate a nuclear bomb and restart the Earth's core. This, I can sell you on, on what this movie is with the description of a single scene. There is a scene in which a scientist, played by Aaron Eckhart, briefs all of the top brass of the US military on it. He explains all of this and he says, Gentlemen, the Earth's core has stopped rotating. There is a musical sting and all of the generals go, <gasps> like it's that kind of a thing. It is, <laughs> it is incredibly entertaining, but kind of, well, not kind of, really stupid, actually. It's a clunky, clumsy thing lumbering about the place. It has laughable science, absurd dialogue. It is a $60 million B-movie, and it has no self-awareness whatsoever. And that is what makes it great. It's basically Armageddon in the other direction. Instead of going up, they're going down. They get the team together. They're building the machinery that's going to transport them where they need to go. And of course, once they actually start the journey, things go wrong. It's interspersed with these absurd disaster set pieces that the movie just has no budget for. Like, the electromagnetic field is going wacky, so all of these birds, because they use the electromagnetic field to know how to, when to migrate, they go crazy and start, like, smashing into cars and things. Uh, like, really just ridiculous over-the-top stuff. Destructions of whole cities that clearly the CGI... They didn't have the budget for it. It does slow down too much in the final third, though. It has a lot less spectacle, and it robs the movie of its momentum. There's an unnecessary complication to do with stuff that the military is doing while they're down there as well that I could have done without. And the characters are, are thinly drawn, but the cast is confusingly stacked. I mentioned Aaron Eckhart, but you also get Hilary Swank, Delroy Lindo, Richard Jenkins, Alfred Woodard. Uh, Bruce Greenwood, and a delightfully hammy Stanley Tucci. They're all okay, but Tucci is great. He He's the one of them that knows the movie that he's in. Emil overpitches some of these really intense arguments between them all as well, and Eckhart gets this deranged screaming scene that approaches comedy. It's a very strange vibe. Tucci gets a similar scene as well, but he makes it work, because again, he knows the movie he's in. It's not just ironic praise I have for this, though. There are some genuinely cool ideas. I mean, the simple premise is deeply unscientific, but there are, like, decent obstacles and things as they approach the core 
I mean, there's a point where they find caverns in, you know, halfway through the crust and they have to go out and, you know, remove an obstacle. I mean, there's a great lava death scene. <laughs> it's really goofy. You always gotta love lava. Mm, it, it's really goofy, but it seems like a great one to watch with friends over pizza and kind of make fun of. I watched Phone Booth, a thriller film directed by Joel Schumacher. Uh, it's about this arsehole named Stu Shepard, played by Colin Farrell. He's on the sidewalk in New York one day and a phone booth rings. He answers. And there is a sniper on the other end of the line who is threatening to shoot him if he steps out of the booth. Uh, the sniper voiced by Kiefer Sutherland. It's a really cool thriller premise. It's Hitchcockian. In fact, it was actually originally pitched by the writer to Hitchcock. This was in development for many years. They just, the writer could never figure out why he would not just leave. And to, and until he came up with the sniper thing. I mean, the pitch to Hitchcock was just a movie that takes place with a guy on the phone in the phone booth. It's tight and it's contained. It's one location. It's only about 75 minutes when you take the credits away. If not real time, then it's, then it's getting real close to it. The caller is basically forcing Stu into a reckoning, undoing all of his lies, forcing him to confess all of his sins. Uh, the cops arrive and they think that Stu is a shooter because the sniper has killed a guy in the street as well, but he can't hang up. And so all of the police are surrounding him. There's a police captain played by Forrest Whitaker who sort of suspects that something is wrong with this picture. And that keeps things moving. It arrives at the right time, but it's, it's all missing just a little bit, something extra to keep the pace up. They seem kind of stuck with the finale. Like they don't quite know how to end it in big enough fashion. There are also some, like, way overdone depictions of sex workers with their pimp on the street. Really trashy that the movie spends a long time on. And there are a few directorial choices that, well, one primarily that I had a bit of a problem with. I mean, Schumacher chooses to keep Sutherland's voice clear. So it sounds like it's a recording of Sutherland rather than over the phone. And, I mean, I get it. I get that you want to make sure that the audience understands everything that he's saying that there's no risk there but i do think it was the bad call because i think it takes away from some of them the immediacy i think it it forms a bit of a disconnect between farrell and sutherland's characters that that the movie did not benefit from but he does have some really interesting ways of shooting he shoots Stu from all of these very voyeuristic shots from up high from up from windows from across the street it sort of emphasizes the danger that this guy could be lurking anywhere with a gun pointed at him farrell and sutherland are both really good i'm not sure i buy Stu's arc but i do buy farrell when he's doing it and sutherland's voice is a voice that works brilliantly for for being a just audio on the other end of a phone kind of performance it's available for streaming in Di on disney plus in australia if anybody is interested lastly this week I watch Holes. It is a teen adventure film directed by Andrew Davis. It's based on the novel by Louis Sacker. And it follows the wrongly convicted teenager Stanley, played by Shia LaBeouf. He's sent to a remote Texas juvenile detention camp where the cruel warden, played by Sigourney Weaver, is making all of the boys dig holes every day. One hole a day in the middle of the desert. And it becomes pretty clear that she is searching for something and that it is connected to both the history of the area and Stanley's ancestry. Did you guys ever read this book in high school? Nope. I did. It was part of the curriculum at my high school. We read it and studied it and everything, and I really loved the book. 
And the story of the book is really complex, really interesting. And the story is still fantastic in the movie, but the presentation is is what's underwhelming here. It's all just a little bit Disney Channel. There is the generic teen music that plays these descents into slightly lowbrow comedy. It pitches the bad guy's performances as way too wacky as well, with the exception of Weaver, who makes her character threatening because she is Sigourney Weaver. The narrative itself is, is still really good. It has all of these flashbacks to how the town used to be, and it's got this Jim Crow era story of racism and bigotry tied to it. And it, it, it's all tied up in these overall themes of racism, imprisonment, legacy. There's just a lot going on here, which is why it's such an acclaimed book. It's rare that a kid's book has all of that going on in it. And it, it has this sort of slightly fairy tale vibe. I mean, nothing supernatural or anything like that, but it feels like those kinds of old stories. It feels like, you know, Hansel and Gretel lost in the woods or mm. Little Red Riding Hood off to see a grandmother. I mean, there's just something kind of just a little bit wilder that gives it just a hint of unreality to what's going on. Most of my problems here are just in the delivery. I mean, you get the characters of Mr. Sir, very clownish John Voight performance as Mr. Sir. Uh, you get Counselor Pendanski, who's played by the cartoonish Tim Blake Nelson here. Weaver's the only one that stays grounded through force of will, and I don't remember the book being like that. And it looks pretty generic, too. There's no style to it. Davis is relying on all of these desert landscapes, and it's impressive, admittedly, but it's photographed pedestrianly. It all just lacks the special energy that the book had. It's one of those books that I actually, like, I started reading and I didn't stop reading. I just kept reading until I finished it. And, you know, the movie doesn't capture that pacing. It, the pacing's too slow here. It does improve towards the end, but it just overall lacks creativity. It did make me want to revisit the original book, however. It's available for streaming on Disney Plus in Australia, if anyone's interested. And that is me done for the week. How about you guys? So this week, we watched seemingly a reboot of an old franchise that Harley and I have watched with our father. This is a series that we watch in the same way that we like to watch the 60s Batman TV show. We watched Masters of the Universe Revelation. This is a direct sequel to the original 1983-1985 filmation series. This follows a giant battle happening at Castle Grayskull where He-Man and Skeletor disappear, and they take all of the magic in Eternia with them. I've I've heard some interesting things about this, because apparently people are really pissed off with the general premise of it. (sighs) He-Man was never the interesting character. He never was. He was just a big burly boy who went and he did shit. And it's far more interesting to put these characters on the back foot. Essentially, what this show is, is, yeah, both He-Man and Skeletor disappear at the end of the first episode. Then you have a time jump to see how, essentially, the world is reacting to not only the loss of its protector and its greatest villain, but also the magic that sustains that world. So there's this, like, post-apocalyptic feeling to it. It's... Where are the heroes now? Which villains have filled in the power vacuum now that Skeletor is gone? Yeah, I am getting, like, real Last Jedi vibes from the 
style of discourse surrounding the reaction to this. It's a bunch of whiny dudes online yeah. complaining that Teela has now got the main focus here. But I think this is a very good ensemble piece. It is. You've got fantastic performances. We got Chris Wood, who Harley and I know as playing Monel in Supergirl, as He-Man and Prince Adam. He does a very good job at this. He does the powerful bassy, I have the power thing. But he's also got the softer spoken, higher pitched Prince Adam voice. So Michelle Geller is fantastic as Teela. She's battle weary and worn down. She's been lied to for so long. This show takes it very seriously. It takes it seriously. Teela finds out that Prince Adam was He-Man the whole time, right before both he and Skeletor are gone. And she's been disenfranchised with the whole magic bullshit. She does fantastic. Lena Headey is Evelyn. Absolutely one of the best pieces of casting I've ever seen for a reimagining. She's bringing in a lot of very bitchy, sassy, Cersei Lannister energy, which is great. But you also get more, you know, quieter moments with the character where basically they touch on all of the jokes that Harley, I, Dad, and our sister would make when we watched He-Man about why does she put up with the shit that Skeletor does? She's far more powerful than him. She's far more evil than him. Why latch herself to this moron? You've also got Diedrich Baker as Trapjaw and King Randor. That's Diedrich Bader. Diedrich Bader, sorry. We've got Liam Cunningham as Man at Arms, or Duncan, as his real name is. He's fantastic in this. He He's bringing that Sir Davos energy to the character. It seems like he's sick of fighting. You've got Griffin Newman as the magician Orko. I love Griffin Newman. Mainly because of the po- because of his podcast, but still. Comparing his voice acting as Orko to the original, two voice actors, especially the one from the original series, perfect. Pitch perfect. You've got Henry Rollins as Triclops, who in the time after Skeletor's disappearance has started a cult all about technology and has started turning people into cyborgs. And he's become really fanatic about it. And it's a really fun Henry Rollins performance because I know him more from his darker film performances, his documentaries and his music. You've got Stephen Root as Cringer slash Battle Cat. You get Kevin Conroy as Merman for a couple of episodes, and that's fun to hear the voice of Batman coming out of perhaps the most useless of Skeletor's minions. And everyone has taken a level up in terms of power and badassery in this. And seriousness. Merman is there shirtless, missing an eye. He's like king of the seas and shit. Mark Hamill as Skeletor... He's basically being the Joker, and I would have it no other way. The cool thing here is that in the first episode, Skeletor has taken this up a notch. He's taking this seriously now, and this isn't more of his, nah, I'm gonna get caught, see? Bullshit. This is him playing to win or die trying. Yeah, he's he's going sort of whole hog into this, and I just really enjoyed this. 
I I love the hell out of this. Yeah, it took everything seriously. The animation is fantastic. It pokes fun at the old show while also really respecting its characters enough to take them seriously. You can tell that these are the characters from the original Filmation series. This is them, but they've just been given the opportunity to become bigger tackle more serious moments and really develop i loved this yeah and people people complain about everything there's a section of the fan base for this who were just like oh it's all this woke uh women being the vegan you know main focus of the show but if you want to watch the old show no one's stopping you it's still there the one thing I think it does miss out on is sometimes at the end of the episodes of the original series, it'd be like one of the characters talking directly to you, the audience. Yeah. Saying like, it's important to brush your teeth or cross the <laughs> road at the crossing. This episode was about friendship and how we should listen to our friends. They got so close to hitting one of those types of moments in the show I was begging the show to just, like, look directly at me as it said this shit, but it very cleverly sort of, like, trod that line between poking fun at the old show, but also having this degree of real reverence for it. Kevin Smith and the team take it seriously in a way that might be off-putting to some people who want just a simple story, but for me... This was fantastic. It's like, it's everything I wanted from this series. Including very, like, heavy metal fantasy-themed score from Bear McCreary, who has quickly become just my favorite composer working today, just from the sheer creativity of this guy. He did Child's Play, he did Fantasy Island, Godzilla King of Monsters, and now this. He's just got buckets of talent it's just incredible you could find this on netflix this is a netflix original we watched the first five episodes the next five episodes are coming out in september i believe it feels like this is like the first season and we get this really tight cliffhanger oh yeah really cool i cannot gush about the show enough because how the cliffhanger gets started is something that you know would be the smart thing for a character to do, but they've never done it till now. Yeah. And now that they take the opportunity given, you're just like, yes, but oh shit, this is not going to end well. Yeah. Oh, it's so good. I loved it. And now... For our small mini-segment, Save Me From Smallville, where we talk about the scary shit we see in the Superman origin story Smallville, we watched episode 6 of season 5. Finally, like, I'm, I admit that the obsessive-compulsive in me is infuriated when you stop shows in the middle of a season like that. <laughs> Watching Alison Mack investigate a sex trafficking ring feels kind of gauche in hindsight. <laughs> Chloe, Alison Mack... Offering up Lois as bait in the investigation feels even more so. Hearing Max say, thinking bad, dancing good, said to chill up my spine. Yeah. Oh, dear. Like, this episode did not age well. It didn't feel good. 
And it did have a cool reunion between Jonathan Schneider and his co-star from Deuce of Hazard. So that was cool. That was some neat, cool stuff, and you could tell that the you know they've got a lot of chemistry as performers. But man, CW shows were weird back in the day. I mean, the shit they did in this episode. I don't know if they could do it on, say, The Flash or Supergirl. The characters walk backstage at a strip club in this episode, and I'm like, a strip club? In this time slot? (laughs) How do you know what time slot it aired in? I grew up in the 2000s, Lawson. I know when Smallville was on. Ah, you're talking about the Australian time slot. We don't care about that stuff in Australia. (laughs) (laughs) It was... This is a particularly scandalous episode that, due to Alison Mack's involvement, does not age well. Like, just checking here, Smallville on DVD in Australia, a lot of the seasons were rated MA. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, they get dark. There are some, there's some raunchy stuff here. And they just announced that it's all coming to Blu-ray. Yeah, which is a neat idea. (laughs) Which is a neat idea? Which they did it sooner. A little late for me, but... You know. Now we're going to play for you the trailer to Chicago. A flash of leg. The taste of temptation. The smell of corruption. And things that go bump in the night. Slick your hair and wear your buckle shoes. Velma has it. a brand new start to do that. Roxy wants it. All my life, I wanted to have my own act. That's great. I'll be in touch. You know, I'm not quite finished yet. Face it, Roxy, you ain't never gonna have an act. You got connections? I would have said anything to get a piece of that. What you need is Billy Flynn. He's never lost a case. Billy can fix it. My client feels that it was the combination of liquor and jazz which led to her downfall. Hey, Mama! You're the Velma Kelly. I was there the night that you got arrested. Yeah, you and half of Chicago. You couldn't buy that kind of publicity. But in a city where everyone loves a legend, there's only room for one. You want some advice? Keep your paws off my lawyer. Sweetest little jazz killer ever to hit Chicago. That's the angle I'm after. You were in the paper today, too. In the back with the obituaries. They love me. They love you a lot more if you're a hang. You know why? Because there's some more papers. That's Chicago. Catherine Zeta-Jones, Renee Zellweger, and Richard Gere. Are you guilty or not guilty? Don't you want to take my picture? Good night, folks. Gotcha. Chicago. That was the trailer for Chicago. It is a darkly comedic musical satire directed by Rob Marshall, and it is based on the stage musical of the same name written by Bob Fosse and Fred Ebb. 
which was in turn based on the play of the same name written by Maureen Dallas Watkins. It is set in Chicago in the 1920s and follows the selfish and vapid Roxy Hart, played by Renee Zellweger, a housewife with dreams of vaudeville stardom who treats her dolt of a husband Amos, played by John C. Riley, with barely disguised contempt. After discovering her lover, Fred Casely, played by Dominic West, is a sleazy prick who was lying about his industry connections and cannot, in fact, get her her dream job, Roxy shoots and kills him in a sudden rage. Imprisoned while awaiting trial for murder, and knowing that the district attorney is pushing for the death penalty, Roxy hires a slick and duplicitous lawyer named Billy Flynn, played by Richard Gere, to get her off. Flynn proceeds to conjure up a mad tabloid fervour around the case, transforming Roxy's image into that of a poor, wayward girl undone by naivete. The tactic works, to the chagrin of showgirl Velma Kelly, played by Catherine Zeta-Jones, Roxy's fellow prisoner and another of Flynn's clients who is awaiting trial for the murder of her husband and sister after catching the pair in flagrante. <laughs> Position 17, The Spread Eagle. Uh, uh, it just kills me, the language that you use in these synopses. Oh. There can only be one flavour of the month, and Roxy and Velma viciously compete for the favour of a complicit press and an unquestioning public, battling for their lives, their freedom, and the 15 minutes of fame Roxy has craved for so long. So before we get too deep into this, why don't we each go around and give our timed 30-second thoughts on what we made of Chicago. Why don't you start us off, Sean? Are you ready? Yes, I am. Three, two, one, go. I really enjoyed this. It's my kind of over-the-top musical. It really did help revitalize film musicals, and I'm so thankful for that. It has such an energy. The staging of the musical numbers is fantastic, and the performances are all fantastic. Who knew Richard Gere could dance and sing and do ventriloquism? Quotation marks. All right, Harley, you ready? Three, two, one, go. This is a wonderful, wonderful movie. It's slick, it's sexy, it's got these, like, almost dream sequence-like musical numbers that sort of, like, interplay with reality in a very fun way that make it look like you're in Roxy's mind. Yeah. As someone obsessed with jazz and being a star. It is great. I never want to hear you say the phrase, it's slick, it's sexy, ever again as- uh, 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 I said sleek. <laughs> It's slick, it's sexy. Whatever, I never want to hear that from your mouth again. Alright, you got me queued up, Sean? Yes, I do. Three, two, one, go. I really, really love this. I love musicals just in general, and this is a really good one. It's got so much style, it's got so much creativity, it's directed brilliantly, the dancing in it is I usually don't talk about the dancing in musicals, but the the choreography in this is great. And the way that the musical numbers are framed, the story, it's it's a cutting satire of a narrative. It's just a really, really strong film. And with the one-two punch of this and Moulin Rouge, you're right, Jean, it really did bring the musical back from limbo, where it had been existing for really 15 years at that point. So I I do have a production history here for the making of this film. 
not just the film, but actually some of the background for the play as well, because people don't remember that the the stage musical is not actually the original story. It is it's an adaptation, an adaptation of a largely forgotten 1926 stage play, which was written by Maureen Dallas Watkins, who was a former reporter. And it was based on real cases that she covered. The 1920s were kind of infamous in Chicago for seeing this string of sensational murder trials, particularly beautiful women killing their lovers. And for whatever reason, all male juries kept letting them off. The characters here are really based on uh, two real-life women. There's Bulanan, who shot and killed her lover. She claimed that they both were squabbling over her gun, and she got a hold of it and killed him. But she's also reported to have played a foxtrot record on repeat for over two hours, watching him die, before she called her husband. She was acquitted, because her incredibly understanding husband paid for the defence and was dumped the day after she was acquitted. She died of tuberculosis four years later. The other woman that this is based on is Belva Gartner. But there are much less similarities to what happens in Chicago here, save for her claiming not to remember at all what her interaction was with the person she killed. The play itself was fairly successful at the time. It prompted two film adaptations. There was a 1927 silent film that was recently restored after a long period of scarcity. It is available now on Blu-ray, I believe. And there was also a 1942 adaptation called Roxy Hart that starred Ginger Rogers as Roxy in that they changed it and she was innocent of the murder due to the production code stuff that was in place at the time. But the legendary Broadway musical director Bob Fosse had the play brought to his attention in the 1960s by his wife, who he also frequently collaborated with, Gwen Verdon, who was an actress. She brought it to him and he approached Watkins for the rights to adapt it, but she declined. She was supposedly a little regretful of the sensationalist atmosphere of the time, an atmosphere that she played into in her role as a reporter. And there has been some speculation that she she suspected that reporting like hers led to the acquittals of murderers, like the ones that she was talking about, writing the play about. But she died in 1969, and her estate had no such qualms selling the rights to Bob Fosse, and, and so he got them. And Chicago the Stage Musical was launched in 1975. It starred Gwen Verdon as Roxy, Cheetah Rivera as Velma, and Jerry Orbach as Billy. Jerry Orbach, of course, was the candelabra in Beauty and the Beast, and on Law and Order for many years. But uh, Cheetah Rivera is actually in this movie as a cameo. She is the older prisoner, the, the smoker that Roxy meets when she first gets into the prison. That is Cheetah Rivera, the, the original Velma. But it wasn't particularly well received when it came out on the stage. The cynical tone didn't resonate with people. And it, I mean, it ran for two years. It's not a failure, but it, it wasn't good by the standards of Bob Fosse. And he always wanted to make a film version of it, which is something that he had started branching out to before he died of a heart attack. He had made movies like Cabaret, where he was starting to bring the, the musical from the stage to the, the to the screen, his experience with it, he was starting to utilise in that way. But as a side note, the FX miniseries that came out, I think last year, Fosse Verdon, starring Sam Rockwell as Fosse and... Um, 
Michelle Williams as Verdant, sort of a, a, an account of their relationship and their collaborations, that miniseries depicts the making of Chicago as a stage musical. So that might be of interest to people if they like this film. I used the movie to um, add it to the list. So there you go. Mm. It was the 1996 Broadway revival that really made Chicago what it is now. It was much more successful because it was launched in the era of OJ. All of the stuff about show trials, all of the stuff about celebrity defendants, uh, that stuff was a lot more obvious and in play in the culture at that time. And it was a big success. It is the longest-running musical revival on Broadway. It continues to be. It is still going. It has not stopped playing since 1996, except, of course, for the COVID shutdown. But it's it's come, it's back already, I think. I mean, come on. It's Chicago. It is the second-longest musical to play on Broadway full stop. But yes, it's it's Chicago is still playing now. It has over nine th- has done over nine thousand performances since that revival started. There was a there was a twenty eighteen Aussie revival as well, starring Natalie Bassingthwaite as Roxy Izzy from Neighbours, which seems like perfect casting considering she was basically already playing Roxy on Neighbours. <laughs> well, you have spoiled my life. You have destroyed my happiness. Anyway, in this, of course, this Broadway revival really got a lot of interest in, in making a movie version of really, it. It really put a fire under the butts of people. And and director Rob Marshall started out as a stage director and choreographer. Oh, you can tell. He actually staged a Los Angeles production of Chicago before he became a film director. Uh, and he had moved into filmed, me- filmed media in the late 90s. He did uh, an Annie TV musical for Disney in 1999, and that was really successful. He also did a Cinderella musical for them. But he was approached by Miramax to come in and talk to them about the idea of maybe making an adaptation of Rent for them. And he came in and he was like, sure, Rent's good, but I really like Chicago. Let's talk about that instead. And he had the pitch ready. He had the idea of cutting it away to these imagined spots of the song and dance numbers being intercut with, quote unquote, real life, and that these were Roxy's showgirl imaginings of of situations and that really impressed miramax and they they went all in on chicago uh rent got put on the back burner it later got made i don't think by miramax but they decided to go for this one instead is rent on the list yes cool i love that movie there is one pretty notable change from the stage musical the character of mary sunshine played here by christine baranski is actually played by a male in drag on the stage and it is kind of it's it's kind of set up as a joke that uh the the audience thinks that she is played by a female the whole time until there's a line that Billy Flynn says during a number at one point that things are not always what they appear. I think it's in the Razzle Dazzle number. And at that time the ensemble comes in and rips off the wig and, and the the clothes to reveal like a man in a suit underneath. But of course that doesn't work when the camera's up real close. That works when you're a far distance away from the person and and you can actually sell that. But anyway, also kind of a weird thing that doesn't fit all that well into the story, in my opinion, and it's kind of like an unnecessary element. But anyway, the movie was distributed by Miramax in the US where it received an awards qualifying run on the 27th of December 2002 before it went wide on January the 24th, 2003, when it opened third against Darkness Falls which is a horror movie about a murderous tooth fairy. 
it was also behind Kangaroo Jack, which was in its second weekend. <laughs> this is not nearly as bad as it sounds. When you have limited runs before wide releases, I mean, that always makes the box office rankings a lot less impressive than they would otherwise have been in both instances. And this movie was a financial success, success, a big financial success. It was the 12th highest grossing movie of 2002, and it made $306 million worldwide on a $45 million budget. It was released in Australia on January the 23rd. We comprised $11 million of its run, and it was its widest release here was in 201 theatres. And I think that's interesting because it is noticeably better performing in Australia than some of the other ones that we've done. It's almost 40% more than movies like Signs and Minority Report earned in Australia, despite being lower in the worldwide rankings than those movies and uh, playing in a third fewer theatres here as well. I guess Aussies just can't get enough of Chicago. Yeah, we love it. It's it's also interesting in, in that I just out of curiosity, I have noticed that the wide releases that we talk about here tend to be in the 200 to 300 theatre range in the years that we're talking about. Obviously, 2002, 2003, that sort of era. I looked at some of the more recent releases and, and the number of cinemas that wide release movies play in Australia has doubled in the last 20 years. So we must be a growing market, I suppose. Critics loved it. It has an 86% Rotten Tomatoes rating. The critics' consensus reads, A rousing and energetic adaptation of the Broadway musical, Chicago succeeds on the level of pure spectacle, but provides a surprising level of depth and humour as well. Audiences loved it too. They gave it an A-minus cinema score. It was nominated for 13 Oscars, of which it won six. So it was nominated for, but did not win, Best Actress in a Leading Role for Renee Zellweger, Best Actor in a Supporting Role for John C. Riley, his only Oscar nomination. Best Actress in a Supporting Role for Queen Latifah. Best Director for Rob Marshall. Best Writing for Adapted Screenplay. Best Cinematography. And Best Music Original Song for the song I Move On that plays over the end credits, which is one of those things that movie musicals adaptations do. They will quickly write an extra song just so they can get that nomination. But it won Best Sound, Best Film Editing, Best Costume Design, Best Art Direction, Set Direction, Best Actress in a Supporting Role for Catherine Zeta-Jones, and Best Picture. Now, this is a bit of a weird little addendum here. It is noted for being part of, and perhaps even a beneficiary of, a very controversial Oscar season. Harvey Weinstein was a producer on four of the five Best Picture nominees that year. Chicago, Gangs of New York, The Hours, and Lord of the Rings, The Two Towers. The fifth movie was Roman Polanski's The Pianist. And Weinstein was, of course, infamous for his throwing his weight around with the Oscars in those campaigns. And he decided that this year they were going to go all in on Gangs of New York. And they waged an incredibly aggressive marketing campaign. They sent Scorsese to every possible party and event. They really marketed the hell out of it. And a few months before the ceremony, an opinion piece appeared that was written by Robert Wise, who was the former head of the Academy and the director of West Side Story and The Sound of Music. And he waxes lyrical about how great Gangs of New York is and how awesome Martin Scorsese is. I've got a couple of quotes here from him. It's a film that is, for me, both a remarkable movie in its own right and in many ways a summation of his entire body of work. And 
Could this be the year that Oscar catches up with the rest of us and recognises the wonderful body of work of this great director and the huge achievement that is Gangs of New York? Miramax took that opinion piece and took out a ton of ads touting this endorsement. This, as well as a William Goldman piece that was arguing against Gangs of New York, provoked some real controversy because they broke Academy rules about campaigning. And it later emerged that the piece was actually not written by Robert Wise, but instead the publicity department of Miramax. Mm -hmm. Wise was a friend of Scorsese. Miramax Publicity asked for a few general talking points. They then wrote the article and he signed his name to it. And the Academy changed their rules for campaigning in the aftermath. And the outrage that it caused badly winged both Gangs of New York and Scorsese, which is probably why it has the dubious honour of being nominated for 10 Oscars and winning none of them. But Chicago was in already good form for winning Best Picture, but it did probably benefit from that. Certainly, it, it probably gave it a little more push than it would otherwise have gotten. But its closest competition other than Gangs was The Pianist, and... The Pianist actually won the BAFTA award for Best Picture. And when that happened, Weinstein sort of panicked. He thought that there was a real danger that the one movie he was not a producer on might be the one that won. And so Miramax Publicity started calling Polanski a rapist and a child molester in their interviews and in their uh, press releases. It is suggested also, but not proven, that they are behind the resurfacing of a 30-year-old deposition from Polanski's victim. I mean, this is all accurate, but it's also astonishingly hypocritical. Oh, yeah. Polanski still won Best Director that year, but Chicago won Best Picture. And I, I think that's actually just weirdly in keeping with all of the movie's themes of the manipulation of the press and, you know, the, the razzle-dazzle of it all. I mean, Weinstein was famous for this. He, he turned Oscar campaigns into dirty political campaigns. It was him that brought about that transition in the way that the Oscars worked. Weinstein was pretty infamous for all that stuff. He also spent so much during the Shakespeare in Love year on all of the movies. Um, Shakespeare in Love, obviously winning what most people agreed should have been Saving Private Ryan's Oscar. But he also pumped a ton of money into Life is Beautiful, thus helping Roberto Benigni steal Ian McKellen's rightful Oscar in case I needed a reason to hate him more. But anyways, the, the movie was also nominated, Chicago was also nominated for a bunch of other awards too. It, it won a ton of them at the, the Golden Globes. It won Best Performance by an Actress for Renee Zellweger, Best Performance by an Actor for Richard Gere, both in the comedy or musical categories. It won Best Comedy or Musical Film. The BAFTAs, it was nominated for a ton of things as well. The Teen Choice Awards, the teens loved Chicago. Queen Latifah was nominated for Choice Movie Actress in a Drama or Action Film. <laughs> Lucy Liu was nominated for Choice Movie Hissy Fit. Oh, it's a good one, too. Renee Zellweger was nominated for Choice Movie Liar. Queen Latifah was nominated for Choice Movie Female Breakout Star. And Richard Gere was confusingly nominated for Best Villain, even though he's not the villain in the movie. I mean... Um, it's a movie... Full of villains. Yeah, but, like, within the movie, who is the villain? Like, probably Colm Fiore as the district attorney. I mean, Richard Gere is a villain, but, like, more broadly to society, not within the movie. Mm. Like, he's a villain, but not an antagonist. Anyways, that's that. So, why don't we talk about... Well, let's just start off with, like, the style of it. 
I mean, the, this incredible style, the staging of these numbers, the creativity with which the musical segments are done. I really, really love what Rob Marshall's doing here, the way that he's using editing, the way that he's choreographing everything. I mean, I mentioned that he was a choreographer. He also choreographed the dancers in this movie himself. I think that the use of lights and the cutting away and the intercutting between these imagined spots and real life is incredibly creative. And some of the stuff they do here, I mean, what a tour de force is that puppet sequence. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. The amount of rehearsal that would have had to take Mm. is incredible. The skill of Zellweger and Gear to pull that off. And I love the shots of how it cuts from Gear on the stage doing the whole ventriloquism bit. And it cuts up and it shows him holding the strings. The giant cosmic Richard Gear that is controlling us all. <laughs> I love that. That's so good. I think doing the numbers as stage numbers was the perfect idea. Mm. And you can tell the director's experience with working on stage. Because he, well, it's not just done on stages, it's also done in black boxes. And you get that really cool effect in certain numbers, like Roxy's big number where she's talking about being hot shit. It's like this like dark area with like pinpoints of light. It's incredible stuff. It's so visually evocative. More so than it would be as if you just saw the characters in the regular sets doing the dancing and performing. And I do love the um the way that the presentation sort of ties into the themes and the commentary of what's happening in the real world, quote-unquote, the real narrative. Obviously, we've talked about the puppets, that that's in the context of Richard Gere sort of puppeteering the media to... We both reached for the gun. That's really what the song is doing, isn't it? Like, it's just, we, it's just over and over and over. We both, we both, we both reach for the gun, the gun, the gun, the gun, the gun. Like, it's, it's this repetition until it becomes the truth. And then at the end, all of the... the puppet reporters at the back of the stage just start repeating it as chorus and and you get that that long note that Richard Gere holds at the end we both reach for the and then he takes the drink of milk before he says gun and the, his voice continues regardless because he doesn't need to say anything anymore it's going to be said for him yeah mm. both reached for And then the obvious, another scene I really like is when he's in uh, cross-examining Velma yes. in court and it cuts between this sort of verbal tap dance that he is doing in the court, attacking her credibility and where she got the, the evidence that she is presenting. It cuts between this sort of verbal tap dance that he's doing with really no supporting evidence. He's just doing this verbal tap dance to sort of sway the jury. He's just saying words you know he, he's just the vampire. beautiful thing about it is that that was his plan all along that was organized it was his plan to get Belmar off yeah he's just doing this solo work there and that's why it's a tap dance the symbolism of cutting between that verbal tap dance yeah. and the tap dance of richard gear on the stage by himself 
as the tap dancing gets more frenzied, as he gets more frenzied in court. But you're not suggesting that I tamper with evidence, are you? No, 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 let's don't be ridiculous. No, that's thoroughly and utterly absurd. But now that you mention it... Your Honor, this is outrageous. It's outrageous, Senator. Outrageous. People suggest that the prosecutor would make a thieves' bargain with a notorious Velma Kelly and then fabricate the very evidence that set her free. Your Honor, so you win another case here. and move one step closer to the governor's mansion. Governor's mansion. Why beyond all imagination? Oh, you in contempt? No, it is not even conceivable. But. But if it were, wouldn't it be time to say, come clean, Mr. Harrison, come clean, even in Chicago. This kind of corruption cannot stand, will not stand. That's enough, Mr. Flynn. I agree, Your Honor. It is enough. The defense rests. The beauty of it is that it's the verbal and physical tap dancers both represented. He's not competing against anybody. No. He's not up there with anybody. He's alone. This is the him show. This is the Billy Flynn hour. We don't know that the first when we see it, but we find that out later. And I, I was like that scene. I was like, wow, he's actually a good lawyer. <laughs> and then later on, because he's actually like, he doesn't have any, it, it appears the first time you watch it, that Roxy is perjuring herself. And he doesn't have any evidence to contradict that. So instead, he's actually doing a pretty good job of poking holes in it with, with no ammunition. But of course, later on, it just becomes this like giant conspiracy that he's come up with this sort of, you know, magnificent con that he's pulled on everyone to, to get both of his clients off. And Confiore's just like fuming. Poor Confiore, like him and Amos, the only decent characters in the entire story like he's just a guy who's trying to prosecute a woman who killed someone and not only not only does she get off but his reputation is likely ruined because of the association that he planted evidence and talking on on the topic of amos man john c Riley can sing he can yeah this is really really good against type casting for yeah. john c Riley. like his mr cellophane holy shit and that's another one of my favorite ones in terms of the way that it's done. It's very simply done in comparison to some of the others. It's just John C. Riley on a stage in a clown outfit. Oh, man, it's so, so good. But, like, those shots of him from behind with the stage lights blaring and you just seeing his silhouette. I mean, it's some beautiful, beautiful cinematography. Oh, yeah. And he can carry a tune really well. Like, he has a strong voice. You hear it at the end. Of that song in particular. Cause you can look right through me, walk right by me, and never know I'm there. Never even know I'm there. A lot of really great performances were from people I didn't expect, like Richard Gere and John C. Riley. Because when I heard Richard Gere mentioned, I'm like, oh, is this going to be a Pierce Brosnan, Mamma Mia thing? And no, Gere nails it. He nails it to the wall. I mean, Catherine Zeta-Jones, that was a foregone conclusion that she would absolutely smash this movie. Catherine Zeta-Jones worked as a dancer before she became an actress, so yeah. Yeah. But Richard Gere actually, like, very early in his career, before anyone knew what he was, he actually did a stint on stage playing the Travolta character in Greece. Oh. Oh. He was Danny. So he had 
a kind of form with musical. But he's, he's trod the boards before. He certainly seemed like an odd choice at the time with casting because he has such a particular public persona that would not seem to match the character. Like, he nails every performance I particularly like the razzle-dazzle on. I liked All I Care About because it's just this absolute bullshit that he's just spewing out all of this all I care about is love. And it's like, you care about money, dude. You're full of shit. I think that role is actually an easier role to think about who you would cast now. Because I think there's a, there's a few people, like Hugh Jackman, apparent, like, I couldn't source this, but Hugh Jackman allegedly turned down the role because he thought he was too young. He could definitely do it, though. Yeah, but, but now, like, that would be great casting. I think Robert Downey Jr. would be fantastic casting. Oh, because he's got a jazz voice, too. Definitely. And of all the characters, really, all the main characters, at least, admittedly, I'm not a singer, but that seems like the one with the least challenging songs. Yeah. Like, you don't have to belt very much in that. No, with um Billy's songs, it's about speed and precision. It's not so much about vocal tone and quality. It's about getting the words right. Like in We Both Reach For The Gun, when it it's cutting back in this sort of conversation between the reporters and him doing his ventriloquist act as, as Roxy. It's really quick. Oh, poor dear, I can't believe what you've been through. A convent girl, a runaway marriage. Now tell us, Roxy, who's Fred Casely? My ex-boyfriend. Why just shoot him? I was leaving. Was he angry? Like a madman. Still, I said, Fred, move along. She knew that she was doing wrong. Zellweger did fantastic. Yeah, her performances are funny, honey. Her parts and all I care about, Roxy. She does a lot of really good stuff. In the final musical number, the All That Jazz Reprise, you can see how different Roxy is to Velma. Velma's a lot more controlled. Roxy's a bit ferocious and legitimately mad. Yeah. Like, Essentially, all of these musical numbers we've been seeing are, f- are her, like, warped perspective. Yeah. And Zellweger plays that very well because, like, she's not aware that she's nuts. <laughs> like, like she thinks she's sane and right. During Funny Honey, she turns to Amos and says, You're a disloyal husband. Uh, what? But, like, like even, like, the first... One of the first scenes we see her in, she's, like, talking about how she cut his balls off. If she found out he was cheating, she says this to the man that she's cheating on him with. Yeah. Mm. <laughs> I will admit that I'm not the biggest Renee Zellweger fan. I can't really define it. It's sort of a Jeremy Renner, Amy Adams kind of thing where whatever it is, it just never clicked for me the way it clearly has for so many other people. I mean, they're not bad, but I just don't quite get it myself. And I will say that I think... Her performance impresses me here the least of any of the the leads. I, I think, in in some senses, she maybe has the least. Um, I mean, Richard Gere and Catherine Zeta Jones get to show off a lot more, and John C. Riley has the benefit of, and John C. Riley and Queen Latifah, I should say, have the benefit of doing things that we've never seen them do before. Cause Mama's song, man, that's a good number. <laughs> but every every time that and. And I actually think it kind of works for the character because every time that Roxy's on screen with Velma, I'm like, wow, Velma is just like blasting her off the screen with her force of personality. And especially in the musical numbers, I don't think many people would argue that Catherine Zeta-Jones does not have a better voice than 
Renee Zellweger and obviously better dancing capacity. Obviously, she was a dancer. but And I think that works for the film in a weird way, mm. the, the difference between them. Speaking of Catherine Zeta-Jones, I mean, she's the one that steals the movie for me. Oh, yeah. Like, she is so good. It's the kind of anger in her voice as she's singing. Especially in Cell Block Tango. Yeah, the really fierce energy. Like, at the at the end of that opening, the, the all that jazz number... I mean, she. this is before we find out that she's killed her husband, but she has the line at the very end of it, oh, I'm no one's wife, but oh, I love my life. Mm. There's an anger to it that I find really, really interesting. And she was she was pregnant uh, during the shoot as well. Let's talk about Cell Block Tango. <laughs> yeah. The rest of the numbers are really good, but this is the number from Chicago that you know. Oh, sure, yeah, yeah. I think in terms of staging... Like, we both reach for the gun, probably it hits my numbers a little better, but Cell Block Tango is incredible. The way that it's sort of these, it's it's the six uh, women. The Merry Murderesses. Yes, the six Merry Murderesses of the jail. And they, they give their little monologue as to why they're in there and, of course, you know, why they're innocent. And then he ran into my knife. He ran into my knife ten times. <laughs> but then this really like he had it coming that that chorus that's like and, and it gets it gets angrier and angrier each time it's choreographed also as they're as they're telling these monologues they're doing these stories we're seeing the murders. we're seeing the murders yes that it's sort of this this almost seductive dance that they're all doing a tango and a tango yeah and then at the end when the murder happens they will like pull out a red ribbon to signify blood from whatever the manner of death was. And that's like the tragedy of the Hungarian woman who sings her entire, who says her entire monologue in Hungarian, that um, she is the only one that pulls out a white kerchief because she is the only actually innocent one. I will talk amongst yourselves because I did actually find a translation of that. I think my favourite part that they sang in this song is... He had it coming, he had it coming. He took a flower in its prime, and then he used it, and he abused it. It was murder, but not a crime. Hmm. That's, that is great, like, writing lyrically right there. Yeah. Like, whenever I hear Soul Block Tango, a lot like Roxanne from Moulin Rouge, yeah. I always get chills. Tango's just rock, my dudes. Like, tango's, tango's a rad, but particularly... How they escalate. Like, this has a wonderful escalation, but it's like the final thing after the Lipshit story. Mm. It's like, it's like peak anger, peak self-righteousness. It's like, it is so powerful. And the way that it's shot and edited, like the energy that the editing creates uh, as... And the, like, the anger with which all of the women and, and how all of the, the female background dancers come out as well. It's, it's. I mean, it's weird to call it feminist because they're all murderers justifying their murders. But there's this fe- there's this feeling of like ruthless femininity in a way that is is interesting. And 
I, I, it's interesting in the sense also of how scantily clad they all are. But at the same time, I think Marshall avoids the male gaze of it all. Yeah. That they're scantily clad the whole way through, but n- never ever in the number do they not have a hundred percent of the power. Oh yeah. Like this is a, a tango is meant to be kind of like a push and pull sort of thing. That's what it, a tango is designed around seduction. That's the entire idea. And it's an incredibly sexy number. No, it's like, it's it's meant to be. Yeah, the, the aggression of, of that choreography is incredibly sexy. I don't know if I'm revealing too much about myself, but... Um. As opposed to a lot of other tangos and a lot of other things, this isn't a push and pull. The maybe murderesses have all the control 100% of the time. And that's what adds to the emotion behind the number because it, it 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 it's playing on that lack of balance. Like you're hearing the stories. This isn't about you. This they don't care who you are as long as they get heard. Because mm. that's the point, and that's what makes the number so great. Is because the director understands that, the performers understand that, and the people who initially created the sequence in the stage play understood that. Yeah, and I, I mean, not only is the music and the choreography great, but as you said, the lyrics are just fantastic. The, I guess you could say we broke up because of artistic differences. He saw himself as alive, and I saw him as dead. That's just awesome. Rob Marshall did say in some of the behind-the-scenes footage, it's like a two-hour documentary on the making of this on the Blu-ray, but he was saying how difficult it was to cast those roles because... It's incredibly complex and physical choreography. Like, you need to be good at it or it will, like, destroy you physically. But they needed to be able to sing also, but they also needed to be able to act. So it was this fairly complicated series of roles to cast. But I did find the translation of the Hungarian woman's verse. How did I find myself here? They say my famous lover held down my husband and I cut off his head. But it's not true. I am innocent. I don't know why Uncle Sam says I did it. I tried to explain at the police station, but they didn't understand. Yeah. Apparently the actress that plays the character is actually Russian, and even most Hungarians don't understand what she's saying, but... Like, the intent is there. The intent is there, yeah. You can feel the intent. And then, going from that story that's running through the back of it, Hunyak, the Hungarian woman, is the first woman executed in the state of Illinois. Oh, yeah. All the guilty people get off. She, the one innocent woman, doesn't. The disappearing Hungarian trick. Hmm. That sequence, my God. It's not a musical number. It's it's not a song. It's, you see her standing on, like, a high dive thing. Yeah. Putting a noose basically around her waist as you're watching her walk up to the scaffold. It's And get a noose put around her neck. It's chilling stuff, and it we don't lose the seriousness of what that moment is. I just want to like talk off the back of that the like the strange little introductory segments from the band leader played by yeah. Ty Diggs. I mean, it, it really feels like Rob Marshall taking inspiration from Joel Grey in Cabaret, that which, as I mentioned, that Fosse directed the 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 chorus. It's the it's the Shakespearean chorus. Yeah. There's a technique in theatre called... It's not so much a technique, but a collection of techniques. Brechtian theatre. And the use of the stage in this movie, the use of the band leader as a diegetic 
part of the text always shows us that these musical numbers are the unreality of the situation. That there's something very, very uh, put on and artificial about them. And that was in keeping with um, with the way that the Broadway revival had been staged. The Broadway revival got a lot of attention for its minimalist set design, that it was oh, yeah. had very little backdrops, very few props, um, and it was mostly the the actors, and you can sort of see that parallel there. I Just an interesting note, at the time the movie came out, Ty Diggs was playing Billy Flynn on Broadway. Yeah. Which is interesting. Let's talk a bit about the satire of it all. Oh, yeah. Like, this movie is clearly commenting not only on, like Lawson mentioned before, stuff like the OJ trial, the the celebrity trials and stuff like that, but it's also essentially celebrity culture and how, as an audience, we respond to celebrities gone bad. That sort of thing. I think it has, like, a weird re- relevance in 2021. I mean, it, it plays now as a sly take on the modern true crime genre, the I want to be famous thing. I mean, people being famous for no reason. Like, in a world where we're, we've got, you know, Paris Hilton and the Kardashians and... Logan Pauls and all yeah, that. Yeah, and, and then, of course, all of the, the Netflix stuff, you know, the making a murderer, Joe Exotic, all of, all of that stuff. Um, where convicted criminals become, I mean, uh, not yet celebrities and and sort of a personal obsession with with the criminal. I mean, not to make any comment. I know I know that making a murder is a bit of a controversial case there, but but that and then like you see it in the the fever pitch with which murder cases are reported too. Like it still happens. Like Amanda Knox or Chappelle Corby or these people that that the the media takes and turn into celebrities because of what they are accused of doing. That that stuff all is really interesting. And um... and the fact Billy catches himself saying, no, would you say that to the audience? I mean, would you say that to the jury? <laughs> if I were comfy all that, I'm like, I got you, you bastard. Because he's not a lawyer. He's an agent. He's a showman. He's not there to, you know, get justice. He's there to get money. He's there to razzle and dazzle. Even the matron is basically just letting these famous inmates go sit with her in her office, treat her like just a mate. The Roxy character just in general, the obsession with fame, the obsession with having people appreciate her and look at her and having their attention, feels very 21st century. Yeah. And I have to admit, watching the movie, I laughed my ass off when Billy Flynn started following Lucy Liu instead. Yeah. And the look on Roxy's face, I'm like, ha! See, but that's the thing, is that he, for all of his personal flaws, when he has a, a client, he doesn't abandon them. Like, even though it looks like he's abandoned Velma, it's still part of his plan to get her off. Like, he's got these in- intricate sort of, like, cons going on. Yeah. I do love the Lucy Lou bit, though, because she's the only one who's like, I don't... She's completely flipped a lid. She doesn't want to ha- get defended she doesn't want to be in show business she murdered three people and she's fine and i it is funny that she doesn't have a musical number because she says everything as plainly as she needs to she kicks a couple of reporters in the balls as well i would have liked to see more of her though i know that her character doesn't appear in much more of the original stage musical but i do think she was an interesting character well, she's less a character, she's more of an obstacle for Roxy. 
No, I know, but it's like, I would have liked to see her as a character character, because Lucy Liu came in with a really good energy, you know, and to see that used for just the one scene feels like a bit of a waste. I think the purpose of her character is to show us the risk that Roxy is at of losing the limelight and of the fickleness of the media. And, and, and then she pulls the ultimate part of the scam, the fake baby. Yeah. Which, man, Amos, just leave her. Amos, man. Amos, she doesn't deserve you, you gentle fool. Here we go. Um, I've got a, I've got a quote here that I've been looking for. There's a, apparently a program that uh, described the show in the 90, when the 1996 revival came out after all of the, the modern things. Outrageous in the 20s, scandalous in the 70s, and now just reads like a documentary. <laughs> yeah. Fair enough. A great quote. Just, I can't get over the Richard Gere thing. Like, he trained so hard to get the tap dancing thing, and now that's just a skill that he has. Well, I don't... I, I'm not sure he could, like, do it on command if you asked him, but, like, uh, this particular choreographed thing he spent three months practicing, sure. Let's talk about the production values a bit, because I think this, like, the the design here, I mean, the costumes by Colleen Atwood, the production design by John Meyer, the lighting and the cinematography by Dion Beebe, like, the way that they have created this sort of, not only the 1920s Chicago, but the sort of smoky red light, atmosphere of the imagined spots is really effective. It's the jazz bar atmosphere. Yeah. I feel like there's like a real, even even other than the fact that they helped revitalize the movie musical and they came out within a year of each other, I, I think that there's a real sort of twinship between this and Moulin Rouge in its mm. sort of vaudevillian style. Oh, yeah. Like, like you could do like a really interesting three-part... It's a good double feature. Well, well, a triple feature, you chuck Cabaret at the end of it, (laughs) and you're sort of advancing from late 1800s to 1920s to 1930s, growing gradually gradually more cynical and horrifying as you go. (laughs) (laughs) Like the dark side of stardom and celebrity trilogy. Yeah, and the editing, too, by Martin Walsh. I mean, a deserved Oscar win. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. That's... I know... uh, I read a lot in um, some of the reviews at the time, like, complaining about the editing. And I read it, too, when we covered Moulin Rouge, people complaining about the editing as being hyperactive. And certainly I think that that's a criticism that is more applicable to Moulin Rouge than to Chicago. But I think it's... I, I don't find that to be a negative uh, for either of these movies. I mean, it's erratic, but very much on purpose. The editing contributes to the tone and the energy of the number. Yeah. It's it's not like they're just doing it for no reason. Mr. Cellophane has very different, much quieter, much mm. slower editing than the end of We Both Reach for the Gun. Yeah, mm. there's um Cell Block Tango, which is sharp and fierce, and you compare that to Roxy, which is a more of a stay still look at me number, as opposed to like sharp slamming cuts. But then also even like within Cell Block Tango during the lulls when we're getting the monologues, mm. the editing calms down there too. It's it's not just something that they're they're doing because they can. It it contributes. It's working with the rhythm of the song and the music and the dancing to create a tone and a pace. Like, and the thing is, you rarely get confused when it's within the numbers. Like, there's only like at the end when all of the people are taking their photos and stuff at the final big show but 
that's meant to be disorienting. Yeah. I did also find it interesting in the reviews that so many of them were talking about, like, oh, it's such a clever idea to have this all, all of the music take place in her imagination because audiences wouldn't believe it if people just burst into song anymore. Like, audiences are too savvy now. And I found that to be just such an interesting thing, that that was a concern at the time. I mean, with the exception of the Disney animated stuff, there hadn't really been a big musical since the 80s before Moulin Rouge. That that, that was a concern. I mean, and it, it plays a little bit strange now to, to think of it like that, because, I mean, the musical is not nearly up to the, the strength of what it used to be in the golden age, the 50s and the 60s. But, I mean, we've had stuff like, in the last few years, La La Land, The Greatest Showman, Dear Evan Hansen, coming out uh, in the Heights this year, A Star Is Born. I mean, people, Rocketman, uh, the idea that people have a problem with uh, with the bursting into song. I don't know. God help us, maybe it was Glee that did it. Well, honestly, the way I look at it is... As long as you're doing something interesting with it, you know? you may, yeah. In a musical, the worst thing a musical can do is be boring. It's a musical. We come here for the unreality of I've it. never understood the whole, oh, I, I can't. It, it's so silly. It's so unrealistic when they burst into song. But at the same time, I'll go and see a movie about a, an alien that gets his power from the sun that comes to Earth and knocks down buildings while he's fighting other superpowered aliens. I don't have a problem with that. But God help us if they start singing. That's always struck me as strange. It's it's interesting what an audience will buy into and what they won't. Yeah, but it's like when you get to the like the type of people who like musicals. All three of us are big fans of musicals. I know a lot of people from the theater who adore musicals, and musicals kind of just do make sense in a very primal sort of way because the use of song it just gets the emotion just out there. You know, it makes it. As plainly obvious as humanly possible what the emotion is. I will just say, I feel like we're reaching the end, but there is something that I wanted to talk about. This sort of, the the razor sharpness of it all, that there's no softness to a lot of this. There's, there's, that they're all, with very few exceptions, bad people. That there aren't any likable characters here, really, for you to really root for. Other than Amos. Other than Amos, and but, but at the same time, you're so frustrated by him. Yeah. You just want to take his head in your heads and be like, just leave her. She doesn't deserve you. And I mean, Colm Fior is not enough of a presence for us to... No. Unfortunately, because I like him in a lot of stuff. Me too. He just happens to pop up in the background a lot. Come on. It's interesting and you can... It's a very not Hollywood thing to have such unlikable protagonists. Mm. Universally unlikable protagonists. Not even like like one of them that's an anti-hero, but all of them. Like, the thing is, I I dislike Roxy a lot. Great character, great performance. I don't know, Roxy just annoys me. I like Velma a lot more. Like, she, she understands the seriousness of all of this. But there's also like, and I, I think this is something that the audiences tend to recoil from, we don't like desperate, mm. you know? It's hard to back a character who feels desperate, which is an interesting thing psychologically, I suppose, that you're kind of like, well, stop complaining about it and do it. Mm. Even though in real life, you know, we'd probably want people to be a lot more sympathetic to us when we're in desperate situations. But yeah, but yeah I, I get what you're saying because Velma is just a lot less desperate of a character. 
she mm. is a lot more in control and a lot less wide-eyed babe in the woods. Like, but the, the, that's the thing, though. Roxy's kind of mad. Like I said before, she's mad. Oh, yeah, she's kind of lost it by the end. You know, that that makes her fun to watch, but so, still. But, like, she's so cruel. Like, casually cruel to everybody. Hmm. How great a twist of the knife is it at the very end that the last spoken line of dialogue in the movie is, thank you so much, we couldn't have done it without you, to yeah. all of, like, the public. That's great. <laughs> is there anything else you guys would like to add, or should we move on to the IMDb Parents Guide? Oh, because I could imagine there's some stuff that the fo- fine folks at IMDb have to say. Well, actually, not not that much. There's only two items, really, here. Most of the stuff that they noted down, obviously, the, the charged sexuality of the whole piece was fairly restrained. But in frightening and intense sequences, there is the scene involving the ventriloquist dummies may frighten some audiences. Well, it freaked me Fair out. Fair enough. Yeah, it is. It's weird seeing people do that. I was kind of wondering, coming into recording this episode, whether Harley in particular was going to be with me on it's one of the best numbers in the film or whether he was going to, like, absolutely hate it because of... It is one of the best numbers (laughs) in the film, but also freaks me out. People aren't puppets, don't do that. (laughs) Yeah, the scene involving the ventriloquist dummies may frighten some audiences. This scene also has Roxy portrayed as a dummy. Her makeup and facial expressions may be considered frightening. What do you mean, maybe? They definitely are. And then the only one... Other one here is in the violence and gore section. A man runs into a woman's knife. He runs into her knife ten times. <laughs> I, I I like how it's basically staged like in the song. That's funny. There seem to be three types of people who write in the IMD Parents Guide, right? There are people who are taking it, who are doing it properly and are doing, you know, the kind of unremarkable entries that we never bring up in this podcast because they're perfectly sensible within the... the what the IMDb Parents Guide is supposed to be used for. Then there's the prudes that overreact to everything. But then there's the people who are just being a smart-ass and taking the piss, really. (laughs) Like, not treating the IMDb Parents Guide with the reverence that it deserves. Nothing on IMDb deserves that type of reverence. So why don't we each go around and say who our MVP is for this movie and what our favourite scene or sequence was. I will start us off, and I will say that my MVP is Rob Marshall. I was a little not sure. I, I was, like, going between him and Catherine Zeta-Jones, but then I watched the Making of documentary, and I found out that not not only did he direct it, but he choreographed all the dance numbers, and that's what sealed <laughs> it for me. Because what, what, a, what a feature film debut. His first movie in cinemas, and it's, it's this. He's nominated for Best Director. It wins Best Picture. It has such incredible style, such confident staging. It's a really impressive piece of filmmaking and his choreography of all of the dancing. Like, like I said at the beginning, I rarely, when we talk about musicals, I rarely talk about the dancing. It's not something that I particularly notice as much as the music and the, the editing and the performances, but the dancing here is just like top tier incredible. Mm. Like the, the, some of the best musical dance, choreography this side of Fred Astaire. Yeah, that that really pushed it over the edge. I've got to give it to Rob Marshall. Rob Marshall, who has gone on to direct other movies like um, like Nine and Into the Woods as as other musical movies. He's the guy that's in charge of um, the Little Mermaid live-action remake for Disney. Mm. Yeah, 
it's, it's just a really impressive piece of work. In terms of my favourite scene or sequence, it, I, I assume that for all of us, it's going to end up being our favourite number. Yeah. But for me, it is the um, we both reach for the gun scene because I think that that is the movie at its most perfect. Like, it is the blending of absolutely everything, the incredible design, the incredible film work with the cinematography and the editing, the performances, the music and the lyrics the utilization of the imagined spots cutting back and forth in real life, like the commentary on all of the the media stuff and the 15 minutes of fame stuff. It is all of that stuff working at exactly the right pace, building to this like just incredible crescendo of absolute madness with a, with a giant cosmic Richard Gere presiding over it all. <laughs> like that's like, you know how when they end Men in Black, yeah, and it cuts yeah. back, and the world, or the universe is just a marble, marble being played with by these weird Lovecraftian beings in a game of of marbles, flicking them back and forth. Well, now I just sort of imagine like a, we pull back, and above us all, there's just a gigantic, enormous Richard Gear puppeteering all of life. <laughs> I love it. It's the 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 scene at its most. It's the movie at its most outrageous and. I think it says a lot about the quality of this movie that there were so many other scenes that came really close as well mm. that I could have chosen any number of them. Mr. Cellophane, Cell Block Tango, like the tap dance uh, at the at the court. But uh, speaking of, the, the court tap dance was the scene I watched when I was assessing whether I should put it on the list or not years ago. Yeah. Um, that's what got it put on there. So, But, but yeah, that we both reached for the gun. It's got to be, I think, that is the sh- the scene that I would show to people if I wanted to tell them what this movie was, not just in terms of presentation, but of narrative as well. My MVP would have to go to Rob Marshall. It's such an inspired show. The mix of the normal traditional filming and the use of the Brechtian techniques like the stage and all of that stuff is inspired. It is wonderful. I love seeing stuff like that. And it all works so damn well. There's the old adage about directors, both in terms of cinema and theatre, they're the captain of the ship. They may not have a hand in doing each of the individual tasks, but they're the one who keeps the tasks going. They're the one who makes sure everyone's doing things on point and keeping things going. And Marshall, like Lawson said, also did the dance choreography. And his experience on the stage really shines through, and he directs the... I have to say, if this movie had elements out of place, it wouldn't work. If if the direction was any lesser than it is now, it just simply would fail. Because it is bold, it's daring, but there's a danger to that. And this movie knows where that knife edge is, and it gets Richard Gere to tap dance on it. My... Favorite scene of sequence is Cell Block Tango. It has to be. This is the sequence from Chicago. Like all the all the numbers are great, but Cell Block Tango is the one you show people when you want to get them hooked on Chicago. It's got power to it. It's got rage to it. It's a tango, and it plays with that format in all the best possible ways. I'm gonna say it again, John, and you're not gonna like it. It's sleek. It's sexy. It just, it's perfect. Mm, sexy. Ruined that word for me now. 
it's a powerful scene, both in terms of the visual nature of it and just the music kicks ass. It's it's great. I want to listen. I want to watch that scene again after we're done recording. It's that good a song. It's that good a sequence. Yeah, well, for me, I'm going to give it to Catherine Zeta-Jones as my MVP because she just hits every note. She hits every mark. It's just an incredible performance. She was offered the role of Roxy and she said, okay, who gets to play, who gets to sing all that jazz? They said, uh, Velma. And she said, yeah, I'll be her. She threw she threw everything into that performance, and it's just incredible. The subtle parts of her performance, the parts where she's just going absolutely wild, it's just fantastic. For my favorite scene, I give it to Cell Block Tango, with all of the Richard Gere stuff coming up a very close second. Because Cell Block Tango is just... It's the kind of stuff that musicals are made for. It's meant to be just over-the-top fun, you know? It's meant to be that. It's such a well-written song, and it's so well-performed by all of the, the ladies who performed it. It's just incredible. So, now we're going to put in our votes as to see whether or not we're a pro-Chicago podcast. Lawson. Well, I, I think that you can probably tell what I'm going to say, whether I'm going to be a pro-Chicago it's basically a foregone conclusion Person, at yeah, this point. Yeah, it's a foregone conclusion. I think this is pretty spectacular. I think this is a great film. It's a great musical. It has great performances, great direction. Yes, I am pro-Chicago. Absolutely. And I, as you could very well surmise, am also pro-Chicago. It's just great. John? Yeah, I'm pro-Chicago too. It's wild, maniacal... Subtle when it needs to be. Just brilliant musical theatre stuff. I would love to see it on stage. Alright, boys. Officially our first certified positive film. Yes, we are a pro-Chicago podcast now. (laughs) Pro-Chicago the movie. Chicago, the city, TBA. Yeah. I've never been, I don't know. So, yeah, what have we got next week, Lawson? Well, next week we'll be having another extraordinary pivot in tone. We will be talking about the 2003 thriller movie. Some might call it a horror. I wouldn't. I don't think it crosses that line. We'll be talking about identity. If you would like to follow along at home, you can find it available for purchase or rental on the Apple, YouTube, and Amazon stores. All right. If you would like to reach us, you can find us at each of our blogs. You can find Lawson at Exit to the Candy County. You can find John and myself at On the Bright Side. You can also reach us through our Twitter, which is the best place to give us episode-specific feedback and movie recommendations. We'll be picking up a couple series soon. We'll, we'll open up the sort open up the sort of ground for that. But you can also comment on your podcast app of choice. That is the best place to give feedback to the podcast on the whole, because a lot of the podcast services have that as how that works we'll take the movie recommendations there as well please like comment and subscribe if you do you would have our thanks one of the other enclosures i've been in is based on the most perfect sport ever conceived dodgeball is there no greater sport in dodgeball you utilize so many different skills agility strength coordination the game's rules are perfectly organized so that a good player can turn the tide of even the most hopeless game 
It is the perfect mix of defense and attack, a wonderful marriage of skill and athleticism. The game is improved with the addition of trampolines. It gives the game, nay, sport of kings, an aerial dimension that makes it more than a simple sport, but rather a test of one's ability to utilize the world around them. I was able to get pretty good at it. I have a win rate of 31 to 50. Okay, then. Is this just you, this statement just you bragging about your skill at dodgeball? Is that all that this week? <laughs> My future skill, yes. <laughs> and yet you still got caught by the robots. I got good after I was put in the enclosure? Anywho, we don't settle all our differences with dodgeball, Lawson. Uh, the world would be a better place if we did. Yeah. <laughs> the world would be a much more extreme and rad place if it were. Mm. Tubular. I have been Harley Lewis. I have been sleek and sexy. <laughs> and I have been and I will continue to be really perturbed by that. <laughs> I'm Sean Lewis. <laughs> <laughs> Just rock, my dudes.